All right, so good evening. It's good to be back. Good to see you. And I'm glad we're back in our spot. And Chodesh Tov to boot. So all the, all the, all the good stuff. We're going to do Gid'on, which is my personal favorite shofate. Everybody's got one, I'm sure. My favorite one is Gid'on. Not because I want to be like him or because I want you to be like him in every regard, but because he really forms a transitional moment in our book. Last time we dealt with the outline of the book, and I just want to review it because this is the kicker to every single cycle of the Shofatim, the judges, where you have the cycle is like this. The Israelites failed by not clearing out Canaanite culture at the beginning of the book. This was a disaster. This led to intermarriage, acculturation, idolatry, and just all the spiritual woes that are going to plague the entire generation. Okay? That's chapters 1 and 2. Then chapters 3 through 6 simply, three, no, 3 through 16, simply map out the thesis of the author, which he states in chapter 2, which is, thanks to evil, God is angry. God releases some enemy against Israel. The Israelites, after some time of oppression, cry out, or something along those lines, which need not be repentance at all. They're just sad and frustrated and hurt. God feels pity and sends a savior. That's what we call the judges in English, but it's really saviors. That's a better term, as we discussed last time. The Shofet saves the day, rustles up an army, typically pitchfork-wielding farmer types. There's no national army. That's part of the problem of the book. And, and so they don't, they don't have a military. So they get their pitchfork-wielding farmers. They beat off the enemy. There's peace for some amount of time. And then starts all over again. Shofet dies, and bam, idolatry, acculturation, all these terrible things. As people are walking in, first of all, good evening. Second of all, if you need source sheets, I have them. And at this point, Kenny has them. But if you don't have them, so we can, we can fix that, but it's up to you. So just make sure that everybody ends up with one. Thank you. Good. The sequence in chapters 3, 4, 5 are three of these glorious typological Shelfatim, judges. You have somebody named Odniel ben Kenaz, from the tribe of Judah. Does exactly what I just told you, just like the script. You have then a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Ehud, who's famous for being left-handed, which we lefties like a lot, but... Sadly to say, and I'm sorry, Kenny, also, for all of you lefties out there, myself included, he wasn't really left-handed. He was a righty like everybody else. It's a right-hander's world, and we just all need to learn to accept that and fully. What he was, this was the earliest trace of the Israelites trying to create some kind of crack commando, because we were militarily so outclassed by everybody. So what the tribe of Benjamin came up with, it was a good idea, is let's train some elite fighters to also fight lefties. Because everybody is right-handed, and that means that everybody is holding the sword in his right hand and the shield in his left hand. So you don't know what to do with a guy who has a sword in his left hand and knows what to do with it. That was Israel's first effort at creating crack commandos, basically the first switch hitters in the world, right? That's what they were. But, but he was really a righty, I'm sorry to say. You know, when he played as a kid, he didn't bat lefty or anything. He batted righty like everybody else. In the meantime, that all being said, he did a great job, got rid of the enemy, all good. Then came Deborah, Devorah. And she likewise, with a tag team effort with a man named Barak, beat off the Canaanite foe. Everything is looking good. And then we get to Gid'on, the fourth wave. Gid'on starts off like everybody else. The Israelites are sinning. In come the oppressors. This time it's the Midianites. The Midianites engage in agricultural terror rather than military terror. They're not interested in beating us up. They're just interested in stealing all of our crops after we worked very hard to grow it which is particularly aggravating for a, a nation of farmers. It's bad for anybody, but it's particularly bad for these farmers, who suddenly they plow, they plant, they finally get the rainfall they've been praying for, they get it, 
Midianites come in and just take all their stuff, and there's nothing that the Israelites can do about it for seven years. It's like a locust plague. The text even refers to them as they were numerous as locusts. And, and besides their number, clearly part of it was they're destroying our crops the same way that a locust plague would. Finally, the Israelites cry out, and God appoints Gideon, Gideon to be the next savior. Chapters 6 and 7 in, in our book play out, it's a more complex and elaborate scheme than the first three Shephatim that I mentioned, the first three judges. That's the same general idea. Gideon rustles up his army. This time God wants to prove once and for all that it's one great, big miracle. So even though Gideon had 32,000 troops, God made 31,700 of them go home. So that there would be only 300 left to take on a foe with 135,000 soldiers. So they were outnumbered. And they came up with a cool plan. They beat them. God helped, of course. Resounding miracle. All cool. And what should happen at the end of chapter 7 is what you've been hearing in the stereotypical formula in the book, which I will tell you, which is, and Gideon defeated the foe, and the land was tranquil for 40 years. We're all waiting for that verse. I'm waiting for it. I'm sure you're waiting for it also. And just keep on waiting. The verse exists, but it's all the way toward the end of chapter 8. That makes chapter 8 weird. Chapter 8 just should not, shouldn't be there. And that's what I like about it. I like weird chapters. Weird chapters kind of signal, all right, folks, if you're giving a survey course and you have two shots at a book, find that weird chapter. Found it. So this is going to be easy from that point of view. It's all in chapter 8. Everything goes down here because nothing is quite like what it was like anymore. And so we're going to look at it together. After Gideon, the setting of where we're picking up in the narrative is this is after... Gideon has already defeated the enemy. In other words, he's clobbered the army. They scampered and scattered. All that's left to do is catch up with the kings. The kings have gotten away because the kings always get away, right? So Gideon is in hot pursuit of these kings with his 300 trusty men who fought without a single weapon. They didn't fight, actually. They just smashed jars and blew the shofar and created a massive amount of panic. And it really worked because the Midianites are scampering. So here we go. Chapter 8, verse 4. We all have source sheets at this point? We're ready to rumble. Here we go. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed it. The Jordan River, right? The 300 men with him were famished, but still in pursuit. So here we have these 300 men who stayed up all night, ambushed a camp of 135,000 soldiers. One, by creating an incredible amount of panic, have them all on the run, and now they're pursuing. He said to the people of Sukkot, meaning Gideon said to the people of Sukkot, Please give some loaves of bread to the men who are following me, for they are famished. And I am pursuing Zavach and Zalmunah, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkot replied, Are Zavach and Zalmunah already in your hands, that we should give bread to your troops? So what did they say? Not only do they say no, but they say it with a whole pile of attitude, right? This is really an obnoxious retort. I mean, Gideon, this is a national cause here. Gideon is pursuing with all he's got, and his men are giving all their energy, and all they need are some carbs. That's all they ask, right? And they're saying, please, townsfolk, this is your job in a wartime. Give, me, give us food. And they say, forget it. When you come back with the king's heads, then we'll talk, which is a particularly obnoxious thing. So Gideon fires back in verse 7. I swear, declared Gideon, when the Lord delivers Zebach and Salmonah into my hands, I'll thresh your bodies upon desert thorns and briars. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll have the kings, and, and you're going to pay. 
for this obnoxious retort. I'm going to make you suffer quite, quite dearly. From there he went up to Penuel and made the same request of them. But the people of Penuel gave him the same reply as the people of Sukkot. So he also threatened the people of Penuel. When I come back safe, I'll tear down this tower. So Gidon is fuming. All right, so what do you make of that? This is already way beyond anything that we have seen up, up through now in the book. I know we haven't read it together, but if you would read it, you would see that this is unusual. How do you evaluate Gidon's comments? Gideon's comments. How do you evaluate? Yeah? They are. They're horrible. I, I can't which, stand them. Which tribe are they? Let me ask you that. Which tribe are they? I don't know. They're east of the Jordan, so I guess we're Vanguard or half of Manasseh. I don't know which one. Now, Mark? Um, well, he's obviously upset, but when reading this, now having read further in the time, it's very similar to the story of David and Naval uh, and the, the same situation. Very good parallel. It's a very it's sort of an interesting. It's eerie almost, right? Eerie. Very good. Okay, good. So, yeah. Well, it seems to me there's an recognizes the amount of gratitude. He defeated the army and now is just pursuing the kings yeah. to finish them so off, right? There's an enormous amount of Gratitude that he recognizes for what is so he's saying basically, what? You were really already? You'll pay. Absolutely. So he's very dramatic. He is so dramatic. Now, I feel I mean again, we're living in the twenty first century where the idea of threshing people with thorns is not necessarily our preferred mode of what how you handle wrongdoers. Abarbanel points out, pre, pre-19th century, nobody raised questions like this in our, in our literature, in our, in our commentaries. It was just taken for granted. These are ancient practices. This is what you do. One thing that Abarbanel points out, which is obviously correct, is that the towns of Sukkot and Penuel are committing treason against the nation of Israel. Right? Their job is to feed the soldiers in wartime. This is a war situation. Everybody knows that. The nation has been oppressed for seven years, thanks to the Midianites. Gidon is now finally doing what he needs to do, which is beating off this enemy. He got it. You have to get the king. You don't need to be a chess player to know that. If the kings get out of there, they'll go back to their town and their tents and just rustle up another army and regroup and start all over again, because we still don't have an army. One of the great flaws, this makes me miserable, by the way, when you read the book of Judges, you realize the Israelites simply never have an army, right? They, they keep rustling up pitchfork-wielding farmers. They don't have a military. They have no king. They have no infrastructure to create a military. And that's why, at some point, somebody's going to say, you know, enough of this judges stuff. Let's get to the Book of Kings. We need kings. That's the idea that's going to start to percolate here because the people of Israel are as sick of it as I am reading this. I can't believe that the Israelites are subjected repeatedly to ongoing oppression, in part because they're wicked, but in part because they have no means of defending themselves, and everybody in the neighborhood knows that. So, Abarbanel points out that this is treason, and this is correct, and therefore they're guilty of penalty. So let, let's just read a few more verses. You have to see Gidon's reaction. So what happens is Gidon captures the kings, 15. Then he came to the people of Sukkot. This is after he gets the kings. And he said, Here are Zebach and Salmuna, about whom you mocked me, saying, are Zevach and Salmuna already in your hands that we should give your famished men bread? 
And he took the elders of the city and bringing them desert thorns and briars, he punished the people of Sukkot with them. As for Penuel, he tore down its tower and, oh, and he killed the townspeople. Throws that in a nice little bonus there. I heard about the tower when, his, when he was threatening. All of a sudden he massacres the town as well. All right. The question is how comfortable for you, leave the 21st century us thing aside, all right? Because that's never going to help when you're trying to interpret the text. What do you make of Gideon's dialogue, or more of a monologue, with the people of Sukkot and Penuel? What does he say? What's the reason why he's penalizing them? Yeah. All he has to say is quote a Barbanel. All he has to do is say, hey, remember you, remember you were, didn't help our army in wartime when we were, this is life and death of the nation at stake here. Remember when you didn't help our soldiers then? Well, you committed treason and now my job as the national leader is to penalize you. If you would have said that, then that would have made perfect sense. And then you could discuss in your own time what you think of the thorns or, or the mode of torture or punishment. But when he brings up the mockery, that suggests an element of personal connection, right? In other words, his ego is wounded. And he's like, you know, that really, that really ticked me off. I feel like I need to do something to you. Okay, Shari? No, I think it's perhaps you know, more than that. Because, you know, those, he and his troops, if I'm interpreting it strictly shot. Go, go. Aren't asking for much from the townsfolk. If it's literally just bread... They put many, in many wars, many armies would demand a lot more from the inhabitants of the land. Okay, fine. So the fact that in that sense, it's even a greater injustice involved, and maybe that's part of the root of his anger at yeah. them for doing that. I think that's a good insight. Yeah, Mark? Uh, well, maybe also, when, when he talks to the elders uh, in the first part, he, said, he says that when, when the Lord delivers Zibbons, something into my hand, so maybe... The mockery is not only of him, but he's saying that God had appointed him, and that I'm, I'm telling you now, when God delivers that, he doesn't say, I'll do it. When God delivers it, and maybe that's why uh, the punishment there is not really totally his ego, but he was talking in the name of Hashem. Very good, and, and I like your point, and it's going to kind of carry with us down the chapter as we go, because he's a very religious man. That all being said, it doesn't sound like he's talking about sacrilege here. It sounds like he's talking about he's insulted, right? Which is a fair human emotion. People get insulted sometimes, apparently. But if that's the main thing that you wish to convey to your treasonous people, that's the weird part of it. Okay, so let's, let's put that on hold. And let's march down to the next thing and see how it all, it, it's going to keep on happening. Verse 18. Then he asked Zevach and Salmunah, those men you killed at Tabor. He's referring to an earlier battle that we never heard about up until this moment. What were they like? They looked just like you, they replied, like sons of a king. So Gidon obviously was a great nobleman, which you're finding out only here for the first time. And so were his siblings, who you know, they just had that royal, regal appearance. And Gidon replies, they were my brothers, he declared, sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, that's the biblical way of saying, I swear to God, it's a very solemn oath. If you had spared them, I would not kill you. So what is he saying? You have your enemy kings in your hand. You've captured them. You're about to execute them. But before I execute you, let's schmooze about that battle. Right? What happened over there? 
Oh, that we killed some noble-looking people. Oh my goodness, those are my brothers. You killed them. I have no choice now but to kill you. And had you let them go, I would have let you go. So it's personal. It's very personal. If you take him at his word, it's even crazier than that. The whole thing that he's been doing, remember he was pursuing these kings to capture them and kill them? And he penalized very severely the towns of Sukkot and Penuel for not helping, right? Because you never let the kings get away. So let's say he would have caught them. And let's say they actually had taken Gidon's brothers prisoner. And then said, okay, fine. Here are your brothers. Let us go. He would have penalized two towns for committing treason by not capturing the enemy king. And then he would have let the king go. That's actually two kings. Let the enemy kings go. Weird. It sounds like it's very, very personal. In fact, dangerously personal. That's what makes you know, um, this chapter is so different from everything else because people are allowed to have personal motivations. It's really okay. You don't have to, not, not everybody's going to be pure, 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 all for God, all for the nation. We all understand that. But he's putting his personal feelings and motivations and even actions ahead of the national fray. So even though he did all the right things and he's righteous and he saved Israel, we're all, seeing, we're all of a sudden seeing a very different dimension of a shofet that we have not seen up until now. And let's keep on going. Verse 20. And he commanded his oldest son Yeter. This is Gidon commanded his oldest son Yeter. Go kill them. But the boy did not draw his sword for he was timid being still a boy. Okay, so Gidon's son was old enough to be there. He didn't need to have a nanny while the war was going on. He was old enough to be a soldier. But he was young. The Hebrew is nar, I believe, which is a fuzzier term than boy. Like, when I hear the word boy, I think he's six, right? You might think he's six also. Nar can mean he was inexperienced. In other words, he's 18, he's old enough to carry a pitchfork, he's old enough to be there at the battlefront, but he's not an experienced, seasoned warrior like his father. His father is the general. So why did he ask his son to kill the kings instead of just doing it, you know, king to king? He's the, he's the boss, so let him finish off the enemy kings. He learns through action what his father commands. So part of it is training his son. Good. Yeah. Carry on. What else? Why would he tell his son to do it? Especially if he's an inexperienced warrior. It's a family feud. It's a family feud. So part of it is definitely the vendetta thing, right? That because we're already dealing with his personal feelings, so it's not surprising. It's like, hey, you killed my brothers, my son's going to kill you. This is a family thing. Instead of what I would like to believe is more important, it's a national thing. These are enemy kings who have been oppressing our people for seven years. They've been defeated, good. Gidon should finish him off as the nation's leader to the, to the enemy's leader. But he doesn't. Well, he's going to, because Yeter doesn't want to do it. Abarbanel suggests another possibility, which is a different dimension of it. Abarbanel is going to have a lot of airtime. Daniel Schach Abarbanel, besides being like my all-time hero in the, in the post-Rabbinic post world, he, you know, he's famous for being in Spain in 1492 at the time of the expulsion. But he actually spent only nine years of his life in Spain. He grew up in Portugal, in Lisbon, born in 1437. And was an adult there. He was a teacher. He was a very well-known teacher. And, and not to mention, he was also very good on the political, financial side. He was a wizard. You know, that, that's the way to fly, right? So he was able to be involved with the kings there, all of that. 1483, unfortunately, things the tide turned against him and his family. He had to flee Portugal, and he went to Spain, which was the safer of the two places at that moment. In that short span of time, when he got there, he wrote the commentaries on Joshua, Judges, and Samuel. 
then got the job with Ferdinand and Isabella Yemachshimam Vizichram. Nine years later, with his community work, was expelled. He went to Italy. And then he just picked up and started with the Book of Kings. That's what he was up to. So he just picked up right on his writing project. Had he remained in Spain, had they not expelled him, it's quite reasonable to assume he never would have written all the commentaries that he did. He was, way, he was a brilliant man, but he was too busy to actually serve kings and queens and write commentaries at the same time. He couldn't do it. So once he was in Italy, which is where he lived out his life, in different towns, he ended up in Venice. He died in 1508. Reminds me of one thing. I'm sure this happens to you also. In 2006, it was one, this really happened, and I'm sure this has happened to all of you in different ways also. Some night in 2006, middle of the night, I woke up with that start. I'm like, holy cow, 2008 is coming. And I jumped out of bed, it was like 2 in the morning, and I, I have to do something about it. 2008 is right around the corner. So I right away boot up my computer, email a teacher of mine, who's the editor of Tradition, Rabbi Shalom Carmi, and say, 2008 is coming. Okay, so... 2008 was the 500th yard site or death anniversary of a Barbanel. So I realized if I want to write an article about him, I can't wait till 2008 to think about that. You better do it in 2006. So, that's, that, so he said, yeah, good idea. So it worked out nicely. It was published in 2009 because publishing is sometimes slow. All right, well, but at least I had it ready. And, 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 and so getting back to, to a Barbanel. So he, and then he, so he spent the rest of his years in Italy and died in 1508. So he suggests, getting back, to, getting back to our thing, I said over the course of the survey, I hope to at least introduce everybody to some of the great lights who are guiding us through the entire process. But Barbanel had incredible human insight on top of everything else. He suggests that Gideon wanted Yeter to kill the enemy kings because he was hoping to train Yeter to be his successor. So besides the family vendetta thing, he was thinking, you know, this is good experience. If you're going to be the leader of our people one day, well, you were with me by my side against the enemy kings. It'll help train you in your leadership down the line. You'll quickly gain a lot of experience this way. This is the first time we have evidence of a family. Yes, evidence. that's what's so powerful. And Abarbanel has a lot to, he has a lot going for him in general, but he really has a lot going for him in this chapter. We don't know about children of Otniel and Ehud and Devorah, nor does it matter, because there's nothing about dynasties. The whole point of our book is that our leaders in this book are ad hoc leaders. They show up when there's a crisis. Their children don't matter because Shofetim are ad hoc saviors. They're not kings. They don't create dynasties. Yeah. Yes. How does a Barbanel uh, learn this act? Is uh, it Russian? Or? No, it's his own imagination, but it's a good imagination. Oh, it's got to be more than that. There's nothing wrong with that. In other words, he is, he, he's piecing together... Barbanel here is piecing to, he's surmising. In other words, the text doesn't tell you why Gideon asked Yeter. So we surmised family vendetta. Why did we surmise that? Because you see that he cares about his family, right? Barbanel sees something else in our story that's going to make him think. It's not just, it's not figment of his imagination. It's a good text analysis. He's really taking it out of the story. Oh, yeah, big time. He's not, he, these commentators don't just make things up because they're desperate to fill pages. No, they're, they're, it's a very close te text reading that he's doing here. So he sees in Gid'on, for the very first time in our history, somebody's training his kid to be the successor. Moshe didn't. His sons fade into total oblivion. Joshua, we don't even know if he had kids. These judges, nothing about their children. They don't matter, right? Here's the very first time that a child matters, and Gid'on is very interested that Yater should do it. Fortunately for the Midianite kings, but unfortunately for Gid'on's aspirations... 
verse 20, he commanded his oldest son, Yeter, go kill them. But the boy did not draw his sword, for he was timid, being still a boy. He's like, whoa, that's over my head. Dad, you take care of this one. So that's good for the Midianite kings, both in terms of their honor. Better to be killed by your, your rival instead of by the rival's son. And also because Gidon is a seasoned military man, he's far more likely to kill them on the first try, right? which will be a lot less painful in the overall scheme of things. So they're, they're thrilled. Verse 21. Then Zebach and Salmunah said, Come, you slay us, for strength comes with manhood. They're like, thank God. Glad Yeter said no. So Gidon went over and killed Zebach and Salmunah and took the crescents that were on the necks of their camels, because as you know, people brought their finest jewelry with them to war. Go figure. So Gidon caught their, uh, that was their treasure. Yeah. That's something that just occurred to me. Another factor of why he would have chosen his son to do it is how humiliating can it be to the Midianite people to have their kings slain by effectively a boy? It is humiliating. Yeah. That's part of the idea, to humiliate. Oh, to humiliate them also. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. This, this also has an echo of Shmuel, the story of Agag. Right? It's a very simple thing. Somebody was supposed to kill him, didn't kill him, talked about the mother, you know, you're, you're just like, right. you made people jealous, and you didn't jealous this mother. It's like an echo almost. Good. There's, there's definitely a lot of dialogue between the different books. I'm glad you're bringing them up. And, and, and you're right. Okay, so here we go. Gidon, here's what we know about Gidon so far. He seems to be training his son as a successor. He looks like a king, as, as did his brothers back in the day, Alehema Shalom, may they rest in peace, because they're already dead by the time we meet them in the story. And he treats treasonous cities as though he's the king. In other words, you violated our national cause, and you need to be punished. That's what we've seen so far. Plus, he has a lot of personal issues in this. He didn't like being mocked. He had a family vendetta going on. There's a personal dimension to his behaviors. And then, for the very first time in Israel's history, verse 22, then the men of Israel, meaning the leaders of the people, it doesn't mean that all men folks showed up at his doorstep, it means the national leadership, the men of Israel said to Gidon, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson as well, for you have saved us from the Midianites. Here's where the percolating idea that I've been frustrated by from the very get-go. Well, so were the people. They're sick of this. They're, they're already looking ahead, they're, you know, without reading the book. They're like, oh, great. So Gidon will bring us peace for a certain amount of time and stability. Then he'll die. And then we're going to get crushed by some other enemy again. We don't want chapter 9 to ever be written. We're sick of this. What we want now is for Gidon to be king and set up a dynasty. And let's get a new kind of infrastructure and stability and knowledge that we have a leader when the old leader dies. Instead of this anarchy. It's actually a very good idea. And what's Gidon going to say? Don't look ahead. What's he going to say? What should he say? Yes. I'm sure he's going to say yes. I'm sure. I, yeah, I know, I, I know but, but, you're not, but I don't know the next verse. You know the rule, right? Of course he's going to say yes. He looks like a king. He acts like a king. He's training his son anyway to be the next leader. He's in the, he's in the game. He's, he's, he's so going to say yes. And not only that, but now the people want him, which is good also, because if you just set up rule, that may not fly with the elders of the, of the different tribes, and then you have trouble. Here, the leadership is coming to him and saying, we want you to be our king. All the pieces are in place. Victorious general, setting up a dynasty anyway. It's all good. And suddenly, Gidon says something that I find one of the most shocking verses in the whole Bible. Oh, yeah, I know, the, I know it's 
verse 23 says also. But you've got to pretend. You've when you, when you, you got to pretend that it doesn't exist because when you look ahead, then you know too much and that cripples your ability to read the story. Right, here what we're seeing is, of course he's going to say yes because everything about him is kingly. And then verse 23, But Gid'on replied, I will not rule over you myself, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord alone shall rule over you. Well, this is exactly the prophet Shemuel's message, and that's why the prophet Shemuel down the line, Samuel, was dead against the monarchy. He felt that human monarchy in Israel is a sacrilege. Right? God is our king. We can have leaders, Prophets, they're good. We can have judges. We can have all these people who run society. But a king is too powerful for one person. And that's scary. And so Gideon, the very first time, as the idea of monarchy percolates to the surface for the first time in our nation's history, and Gideon is the obvious man for the job, and he seems to be ready for the job, he says, absolutely not. We don't have kings. We're Israelites. We just don't do that. Yeah, Mark. But it doesn't say no, it says mashah, so I mean lead. So I think that's the concept. And, um, you know, is there a difference between a king and just a leader? Because. Uh, Mashal is more, you're right, the word melech isn't used in this verse. But the fact that you say a son, the grandson, is the They want a monarchy. And honestly, if I'm there, okay, I'm a 21st century democratic sort of person myself, but in that setting, given that the current model is a disaster, Monarchy is the way to fly. That's the known model of how you're going to get out of this. Right? And so that's why the elders are they're saying, okay, here's, we finally have the right man for our job. Let's make it happen. He says, no, it's a sacrilege. Beverly? But it seems to me that Gidon, is, you said, and we all know, he's a show of faith. So what if, what if we have to do with being a king or being a, uh, a uh, navi? He's, he's not a navi. He's a chauffeur, meaning he's a military savior. So it's like... Right? So the point would be, well, let's change his job description. The key two differences between Shofet and Melech, one is dynastic succession, which is what they're making a big deal about. That way you know. When there's a king, you know that his son is going to take over. That's very different from the Shofetim period where dynasty doesn't matter at all. It's like we don't know where the next leader is going to come from. God is going to pick it. Right? So that's one. And the other one is just taxation. A king taxes the nation and sets up infrastructure, builds a military. Right? Gidon isn't taxing anybody. He just took his farmers, they beat off the enemy, and now the farmers go back to their crops. It's done. There is no army now, which means the next enemy is just waiting to pounce. So what did he do with the He beat off the Midianites. Shofet means military savior. There was a military crisis. He beat them off. Problem solved. Done. He's a Shofet. Right? He might have also given some spiritual guidance, but that's far secondary to what a Shofet's job description is. It's all about military savior, Kenny. Why There's a difference between God being the king of Israel and still, Gidon is the national leader. He's the, he's the figure who's running the show. He can p- penalize people who commit treason. It's not unreasonable. Joshua also was given that prerogative. He never had to use it. But the, you know, the Reuven, God, and half of Menashe tell him at the beginning of Joshua, the book of Joshua, if anybody disobeys you, that person needs to be killed. Or they're giving him the equivalent of royal authority when it comes to governing the people, because otherwise you have anarchy. People can rebel all the time. 
So maybe, I'm just thinking back to last week's uh, class also, maybe the point is that God pointed Moshe. Moshe, you know, God had Moshe point Yahushua. And after that, there's no, there's no appointment to be a leader other than a military leader. So that Megiddo was given this, you know, sent back your soldiers. I was given a limited uh, limited authority to do just that. I wasn't asked, God didn't tell me to be a leader. He mm-hmm. wasn't appointed leader. So therefore, that's all I'm going to do is what I did. If God wants me to be a leader, he'll, he'll, he'll send me a message. Is that could be. I mean, look, there's a religious dimension to this. I, I don't want to put it too restricted. He's more than just a general. He's a religious man, and he's divinely inspired, whatever that means. He's in that game. Yeah, what is your name? Sorry. Uh, yeah. uh, weren't Israelites commanded to appoint a king? Funny. Wait until next week. <laughs> but, but good question, and not clear. The, the right answer is not clear. There's a very forceful debate about that one. But I, I'm aware of the passage that you're talking about, and there's a very spirited debate, and it actually pertains much more to next week. So we'll get back to Gideon didn't write this. No. Gideon didn't write these words. Somebody did. Yes. Is it possible to look at it from a historical perspective that there was a political class who didn't want the king? And they were the ones who wrote the they put that version in because that's that's the perspective they wanted to push as being historical. I, what I would say like this, I would just put it back into the realm of prophecy, right? In other words, a prophet is the final hand in this book, even if there were earlier scribes or whoever who wrote the original version in Gidon's time. I would definitely agree that this is going to be an anti-monarchy passage, but in the book of Judges, you have pro and anti. It's a complex picture because monarchy is a very complex issue, but this is the first time we're hearing about it, and that's why I'm so excited. Yeah, Lisa? I would say this is what makes uh, Judaism unique. In other words, the old model is always, even in the idolatry model, there's this being or this entity that is the ruler or the person that you sort of expect um, the power to come from. And I think Judaism is sort of taking a turn and saying, you know what, we have these intermittent shoftim, but we're not really, the the whole goal is for you to be good, to, to really empower each individual in the Jewish community to really follow the laws and to be their own sort of, Judges, and so I think mm-hmm. that you know, Gidon is probably sort of expressing really you just need God. I, you know, I'm here as a temporary sort of band aid for you guys, but that's really not the point of all of the evolution of our people. You are, you are so right, and I'm going to get back to what Yoni brought next week as well. But you're so right, clearly, this is a very humble statement, and go Gidon for saying it. So let's carry on to verse 24. Now, some more crazy stuff happens, and Gidon said to them, I have a request to make of you, each of you give me the earring he received as booty. Uh oh. Never go there, folks. It's like that bad horror movie, right, where they go to the basement, right? No, they go behind the chainsaw. So, so it's, it's, don't, don't, please don't make anything out of gold. It never, never works out right. And <laughs> verse 27, Gidon made an ephod of this gold and set it up in his own town of Ophrah. There all Israel went astray after it, and it became a snare to Gidon and his household. Now, he built a golden statue. And, of course, people within short order start worshipping it or religiously abusing it in some way and it's a disaster and the narrator smashes Gideon for making this golden statue. Two questions for you. What was Gideon thinking? The answer is he wasn't building an idol. He was building a monument in God's honor. He said, here's the booty from the war where God, I'm sure of this, Rashi is sure of this too, but, but what do you think? 
He's not building this to get Golden Calf 2, bad knockoff story. Wait for, <coughs> wait for Jeroboam, of the, you know, the founding king of the northern kingdom. He does make a cheap knockoff of the Golden Calf story. But we're not up to him yet. So I don't, I'll get depressed about him some other time. For today, Gidon is just making a monument. And you can see the plaque saying, dedicated to the God of Israel, who beat off the Midianites. We had 300 soldiers unarmed, took on a force of 135,000 soldiers. And God won the day. Blessed be God. That's the plaque. All right? The bad news is once you have a golden statue, people are foolish sometimes, right? So that's, so that's what's going on. The second question, which is a little more sensitive, is, all right, here's a multiple choice thing with two possibilities. The Israelites began to go astray after this shrine, A, during Gid'on's lifetime, or B, after he was dead. Right. What I'd like to think is that this is after he was dead. Right? And Rashi would like to think that too. There's, no, there's nothing in the text that says one way or the other. And we understand that it could be after he was dead. It's not unreasonable. The fact that he, his death is mentioned a few verses later, that doesn't mean a thing. The narrative, biblical narrative often puts together. When you're talking about the aphodes, you just mention the aphode and you get him. Right, but Ralbag, Rabbi Levi Ben Gershon in the 14th century, raises the uncomfortable possibility that in Gidon's own backyard, while he's there smoking his pipe, because they didn't know that smoking kills you, right? So he's smoking his pipe, lying back in his hammock in his retirement. People are coming from all over the place worshiping this thing, or whatever they're doing, bringing some kind of false worship. But wait, a Barbanel is lurking in the shadows, because a Barbanel is dominating this one tonight. I love that. He is, he is, he is the main hero of this. One more bonus point. Remember, what Elisa said is surely correct, that Gidon very righteously is upholding the premise of the whole Torah, which is no person has supreme power. God has supreme power, and the Torah, going back to Yoni's point, the Torah restricts kings. The only laws about kings are kings can't have too much power or too much glory, and they always have to have a Torah right nearby them to remind them nobody is above the law, not even the king. Every other society, kings weren't just divine or semi-divine. They were always the lawmakers. They were the ones who wrote the laws. Code of Hammurabi was written by Hammurabi. They didn't pretend that their gods wrote it. Nobody claimed that their gods wrote the laws. The kings wrote the laws, except for our god. Our god wrote the laws. And our king, even when you have one, is under that and clearly under that. Yeah. Now, I have a question, though. Where have you drawn the conclusion that this was supposed to be a monument to God? Because, first of all, he, he put it up in his own hometown, basically, and then where does it say anything about that it was meant to be a monument to anyone? Because you could draw that imagery from it. Yeah, because it's a very reasonable conclusion. Gidon is a righteous man and never is cast as somebody who feels like creating an idol. So that's why Rashi says what he says. It's eminently reasonable. It's not in the text, of course not, but it's a very reasonable surmising. It goes back to the question of... I think it's a fair interpretation. And, and so the, the, the funnier question is, did this happen in his lifetime? Did people start going astray with him right there, or did they at least politely wait until he died? Well, if they came flocking to okay. him, there was already the least so, of that. So, so let, let's, let's roll it on to 28, because we're going to get back to your point, Sherry, with, with the Barbanel's hat on. Thus Midian submitted to the Israelites and did not raise its head again. The land was tranquil for 40 years in Gidon's time. Hallelujah. There's the verse I was waiting for at the beginning. <coughs> Right? This should have been at the end of chapter 7. Wasn't it at the end of chapter 5 also? Huh? But that's, that's the normal way. The normal way is after the judge beats off enemies, then <coughs> done. Here, Gidon already won the war at the end of chapter 7. So that's where the story is done. 
This is aftermath stuff, right? So this aftermath is what changes the game in the whole book, and that's what this Shiur is about. You're right. It's the stereotypical formula of the book, that after the Shofet beats off enemy, the land is tranquil for a bunch of years, typically a generational figure, right? I mean, up until now, just so I understand, Abe's question is particularly correct. Odniel, 40 years of peace. Ehud, 80 years of peace. Right? Devorah, 40 years of peace. And now Gidon, 40 years of peace. 40 years is a biblical generation. So Ehud was two generations, the other ones got one apiece. But they're all stereotypical generational formulas. Gidon is the last one who gets a complete generation of, of tranquility, by the way. Everybody else is going to have quote-unquote real numbers. Not that these are unreal, but 22 years, and 6 years, and 3 years, and 20 years. No more 40 years or 80 years at all. So it's stereotypical. And it, 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 it's not, it, it means a generation, right? So, it was part of the Kohen's getup, but there were <coughs> mimic aphodes that were made throughout the land, both for people to wear as a sign of spiritual garb, but in this case, in, in, in some kind of monumental thing. Like it's a way of saying, you know, this is for the sake of heaven. That was the point, that was the point of this thing. Verse 29. So Yerubal, which is Gidon's other name, which he earned in the story that we did not read tonight. Gidon, son of Yoash, retired to his own house. So here he is on his hammock smoking his pipe. Gidon had 70 sons of his own issue, for he had many wives. Oh, the man is a harem. Not only does he look like a king. Not only does he, let me, let me go with this. Not only, does he, not only does he look like a king. Not only does he punish treasonous cities. Not only is he training his son for succession, but he has a harem, 70 kids. Why do you want to have 70 kids given what the day school tuition bill is going to look like? Right? I, I, I cringe. Right? The answer is because you want succession. Right? That's why kings have so many kids. Right? You want succession. It's not just yeah, because... Sons. How many daughters? Fine. So do the math. Probably about 70 also. Right? So... Yodana has 70 sons of his own issue for he had many wives. He's really... He, he is so kingly... I, can't, I still can't believe he said no in verse 22. In fact, I'm flabbergasted that he said no in 22 because everything about him is saying king. But wait, there's more. Look at this next verse. This is crazy, right? All right. A son was also born to him by his concubine in Shechem. Concubine is a lesser status wife in, in the biblical period. And he named him Avimelech. All right. So uh, you picture the Brit Milah. Gidon gets up. And he thanks his wife. He better thank his wife, right? She, did, you know, she thanks his wife. He thanks God. He thanks all the people from coming from near and from far. People are still snorting in the mini muffins under, the, uh, you know, while he, while he's speaking. And and we chose to name our son Avimelech. Um, what does Avimelech mean? Yeah, well, my father is king. Now, uh, now who is the father of this little baby boy? Oh, so let's see now. Gidon, who very adamantly and religiously declined the monarchy, is naming one of his kids, my father is king. All right. Just put on a crown already, right? I mean, come on. It's incredible. So for the record, for the record, and this is a very important for the record, the word avi in biblical period, and for that matter in our prayer book, like when it says avi melech, it could mean my father is king. It also could mean just as equally that my God is king. Right? Like Avinu Malkinu, we refer to God as our father. So it could well be that this is father with a capital F and not lowercase f, in which case it's a deeply religious name, way of saying God is king. 
Or maybe the ambiguity in the name is the whole point of what we've been talking about this whole time, right? Where Gidon, on one hand, is saying, God is king, and I'm not king. And on the other hand, he's saying, actually, I am king. But he doesn't give the name of anything because nobody cares about that. Right, I care about this guy, right? Avimelech matters, by the way. First of all, we've learned about Yeter, but Avimelech matters because in short order, he's going to massacre all of the other brothers because he wants to rule all by himself because Gid'on sets up all 70 to be leaders because he's creating a dynasty. He's creating dynastic succession, even though he declined it. That's what he's doing. He's setting up these 70 people, and Avimelech is like, I don't want to be a co-regent with 70 other guys. Let's kill him. So he does. You get some people together and they wipe them all out, except for one person named Yotam, the youngest of all the sons who escapes, yeah? Is it possible that he's prophesying uh, for uh, Abimelech? In other words, he has a prophecy that Abimelech is going to be king since he's so humble? I can never tell you no. But where prophecy isn't in the text, it's hard to surmise that. It could be. I can't tell you no. He's spoken to an angel before in chapter 6. He has gotten prophecy. But there's no reason to assume that in our story. It sounds like he chose that name. So Barbanel puts it all together. Barbanel says, okay, he sets up this shrine in Ofra, and clearly it's a monument for the sake of heaven. But it's also in his hometown, which means that when people make pilgrimages to this thing, they're going to honor God and Gid'on. Because it's in his backyard. He didn't, for example, put it in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, which is in Shiloh because he doesn't want it, right? He could have put it near the ark. That would have been a nice place to put a monument for God. But Shiloh doesn't matter in our book at all. It's, he's putting it in his backyard, or very near his backyard, because obviously people are going to remember, oh, Gid'on from Ofra beat off the Midianites. So it celebrates God, it celebrates Gid'on. He names his son Avimelech, which could be for the sake of heaven, or it could be, I, wanna, I, I want, really want to be king. And I would love it if all my kids become the dynastic successors of me. And he appointed them to be judges afterwards. All right. So what we're getting in all of this is that Gidon is a very complicated character. And that's why I like him, right? I think he's fascinating. What we're seeing here is that he's as deeply religious as all of his forebears. But he has an unbelievably personal desire. First of all, his personal feelings galore. And he also has a very deep desire to rule. He wants power. We've never seen that before in our book. Yeah, Benjamin? He just want to be a king. He just waits for a sign from up there that he's getting ready to be a king. Right. He's ruling like a king. He's starting his dynasty. He's naming his son the, the son of the king. But yet, also God is the king. So is he just waiting for a sign from God that he's actually the king? I can't tell you no. And, and maybe going. maybe he is hoping for it. I prefer to see him as a very just. He's a wound up, he's a very complex, intertwined person. Part of him really believes kingship is wrong. Well, we have already I, be- I believe him, I believe him in verse 22. When he says, no, God is your king, I really believe him. That's I take him at his word. Right, but part of him really, really wants to be king. And he's telling us that. With, I mean, what a great name for his kid, yeah. I have a question. Um, my first thought was, and maybe this is not a correct translation, I'm not sure, but I would have thought, with him like he was, uh, his son was going to be the father of a king. Is that a correct translation of that? Avi Melech means my father is king. Well, where's the my father? Avi. Oh, right. got it, got it, got it, got it. Sorry, they're not my okay. father. Okay. Now, yeah, sorry, Zohar. If we're already on the subject of how complex it is as a character, I'm even more bothered by the complexity of his religiosity. If you're so committed to, like, no monarchy because you're such a religiously divine 
You don't need to buy it. Well, yeah. Like, I, I mean, is it possible he didn't know the story of what happened in the desert with the golden calf? Like, it's not. This happened, it didn't happen so many hundreds of years after him. Right, I, I'm sure he knew it, because it, 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 it's just too big and bad of a story. It sounds like the Israelites knew it and then sometimes forgot about it. And so, like, such a religious person is going to go ahead and do that? Well, because, again, from his point of view, he's building a shrine to God. If you would interview him, you know, here you go. You're the journalist. You just put it up, dedication ceremony. You're covering the thing. You know, and what are you thinking? I'm like, thank God for this incredible thing. And I want the booty from the spoils. Instead of pocketing the cash, I want this to be dedicated to God's glory. But he's also aware of the tendencies of based on at the same time. Right, well, the golden calf is obviously a different animal because, no puns intended, obviously. It's a different, it's a different thing because there they, they wanted to create a shrine from the get-go. Gidon wasn't trying to create a shrine that just went awry. If you want an example, by the way, of another noble gesture that came from God himself, that became a mess. The snake. The snake, right? The, the medical students like this one, right? The, the wacky story in the desert where the Israelites grumble again about the man before you know it, serpents are chomping on them. People are dying, and God says, okay, make yourself a serpent, and Moshe makes a brass serpent, which is weird anyway, but we'll talk about that some other day. Holds it up, whoever sees that brass serpent is revitalized, right? Terrific. Okay, so God commanded this thing and Moshe built it. You couldn't ask for a better tag team of nobility, religious purity than that, right? Okay, centuries later in the book of Kings, we find out that King Chizkiah or Hezekiah was a very righteous king and he dismantled that snake. Why? Because people are bringing incense to it because people do these things in the Bible, right? So you're, you, can't, you can't blame God and Moshe for coming up with the idea. This was noble. There was no, this wasn't an object of worship. It was for healing, I'd ask any medical student. So, unfortunately, once you have a, a thing, well, people venerate it sometimes. It was a sacred relic. I, I imagine it is a chutzpah, that the king is dismantling something that God commanded and Moshe built. It's one of the most incredible relics in Israel. And because Yahweh says, I don't care. People are sacrificing to it or bringing incense. It's got to go. Right? So you can say the same about Gido. I'm not, I don't, that doesn't mean that you're wrong. I, I just think that you can justify him and say that this was as pure as pure can be. So let's, let's, let's back it back over here for a moment. When Gidon fought his war against the Midianites, we didn't see this verse inside prior because we didn't do chapter 7 together. But look at source number 2. When Gidon got his 300 brave men, ready to pounce. And source number 2 over here. When I and all those with me blow our horns, you two all around the camp will blow your horns and shout, for the Lord and for Gidon. His battle cry is the most, this summarizes everything, doesn't it? Summarizes everything. The whole point is that he's deeply religious, that for the Lord, I don't think it's just a token religious gesture on his part. He's a very sincerely religious man. But he's glorifying himself all the way through. In other words, what's happening here throughout and what we've seen throughout the chapter is Gidon has a very strong personal side, a very strong desire for power, and a very strong religious side. And they're just all together because people are... Yes, I was going to say, but but here you really just see it out. So I gave you a summary chart here that just maps out different ways of viewing the motivations. It basically just summarizes the major points of today's shiur. But this sets up our conclusions, which I think are very important, actually. Because it's not just that up until now, for the first 50 minutes, that's a good thing there's 10 more. For the first 50 minutes, the point of the shiur is, wow, Gidon is really complex. How awesome. Right? Complicated, you see it all in the text, all these different variables are there. So it's, it's worthy in its own right. I like that kind of stuff. Okay, for the next 10 minutes, now it turns into the survey course. Why, why we've been spending 50 minutes on this in a survey course? It's because 
If you had to make a graph or just some kind of basic chart of Otniel, and then Ehud, and then Devorah, and Gidon, Gidon belongs to that first half. 40 years, ideal judge, deeply religious, solves the problem, wins the day, cycle, all of that good stuff. He belongs to that era of ideal Shofetim. They were doing all the right things. But after him, well, it's not as ideal. First of all, his son Avimelech is a total nightmare. He massacres his brothers, then just starts all kinds of civil war thing, and finally, the, the way that he, we finally get put out of our misery is he was storming a tower. He was just attacking Israelite towns. So some woman had a big heavy millstone and dropped it down on his head, and that was the end of him. And so, and you know, good riddance. And he's a total disaster. He's a nightmare. He is a nightmare for the people of Israel. But after him, the Shofatim that, that we would encounter, the main ones being Yiftach and Shimshon, so Yiftach also, great merits, beat off the enemy also like everybody else, a very good political negotiator. But what he did with his daughter is not okay. Right? He sacrifices his daughter in a religious vow. It's like the classic example of total misguided piety at its worst. Like he promises God, if I win the war, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of the house to greet me. It's a disastrous idea to begin with, and then it turns into the bigger disaster when his only child, this girl, comes out, Daddy! And he blames her, of course. How could you come out and greet me? Don't you know? Forget about it. Yiftach doesn't come out looking good in that story at all, even though he saved Israel. Right? He also has a lot of personal motivations, and because of pride, he ends up starting a civil war with a neighboring tribe of Ephraim, and 42,000 people get killed as a result of that. So, but Gidon, you know, hey, you mock me, I'm going to penalize you. Well, they mock Yiftach, and he t- gets really ticked off, and he starts the civil war. The only good thing that came out of that civil war is the English word Shibolet. It actually comes from that story, right? Where the tribe of Ephraim had an accent. They couldn't say Shibolet, they said Sibolet, and that's how you knew they, they were Ephraimites, so they could kill you. No, they were so, Litvaks. Huh? Yeah, Litvaks also. <coughs> Different people throughout. I mean, commentators point out that certain places in France also didn't say Sh. They said, so, but be that as it may. And then Shimshon, who's a one-man wrecking ball, he's really an amazing, amazing chauffeur. He's the superman of the Bible and does all kinds of things. He does nothing for the sake of the national cause. The reason why he's killing Philistines, who are the enemy, is because they're getting on his nerve. Right? It's all personal. It happens that he is beating up on Israel's enemy at that time. But he's not doing it. He doesn't have an army. He is the army. And time and again, the reason why he's attacking Philistines is because they insult him, or they did something with his wife, or the, whatever it is. It's all, it's all personal. So the personal side of Gid'on that's intertwined with his deeply religious side becomes more and more personal as the book progresses, to the point where the later Shafatim are simply not acting in the same way as the earlier ones. Another thing that Gid'on kicks off is he's the first one to have a lot of kids, and there are several of the later Shofetim that also seem to produce quite a lot of offspring because this idea of monarchy is now percolating in the air. The idea is if you're the leader, well, you better have a lot of kids because you want those children to succeed you. The idea is now officially coming down the pike. And that's something which is also very, very, very important. So Gideon, on the one hand, belongs to the first half of the book because he's just an ideal Shofet like everybody else. But he also kicks off this far gloomier second half of the book. Getting back to something that Yoni said, the book of Judges is not, and, and, and Elias said this also, the book of Judges is not written by Gideon. Right? It's written by prophets, 
And the prophet is trying to wrestle with the big religious issues. The most important religious issue that's going on, other than don't worship idols, it leads to trouble. That one keeps coming out in the book of Judges. The other one is wrestling with the monarchy. There's no question that Elias is correct, that the Gid'on Avimelech succession, which is the only dynastic succession in our book, suggests dynasties are dangerous, because even if you have a great religious man like Gid'on, his son could become an Avimelech. Watch out, folks. If you want to give up on your Shofet thing, and you want to lock into the leader's children, the leader's children could be the worst nightmare for the people. That's an anti-monarchy passage, right? But then you have those sickening chapters that I mentioned last week, chapters 17 through 21, the stories of a man named Michal who creates an idol, all kinds of terrible things happen over there. Also, and then Pilegesh Begivah, that story where the man's wife gets raped to death and then it starts a whole civil war and you know, tens of thousands of people are killed and, and the result of that, the tribe of Benjamin is almost exterminated, right? The chorus of those two stories is what you see in source number three, which happens to be the last verse of the book is the one that I gave you. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he pleased. What the book is saying is, if we only had a king, if we had a king, we'd have stability. These terrible anarchy stories of the idol and the Pilegesh Begivah, these terrible appendix stories, they never would have happened if we only had a king. Well, these are very pro-monarchy things. And what the book is obviously trying to say is the same thing that we've been dealing with with Gidon, which is monarchy is complicated. It comes with obvious benefits, which is why the people finally brought it up. Most important one being, we're all sick and tired of Israel having no army and getting oppressed by nation after nation. They need an army. The only way they're going to get that is if they have a king with stable dynastic succession and an infrastructure, taxation, you just have to make that happen. And that's why the elders came to Gidon. And this idea, once it's out there, it's in the air. And Shemuel's going to have to deal with it next week, poor man, because he does not like monarchy at all. Shemuel will adopt and and espouse and, and very adamantly insist on... God is our king. We don't have, Israelites don't have kings. That's going to be his party line. But the book of Judges is already saying this is complicated. If we only had a king, not only would we have an army, we wouldn't have these terrible anti-religious stories at the end of the book. A good king can be good for the religious state of the people. And as we close the book of Judges and get ready to move into the book of Samuel, which we'll pick up next week, we're going to see how this story of Gid'on, which has triggered the second half of the book, is going to seriously jump into what the book of Samuel is all about. Because Samuel sits in between book of Judges and book of Kings. And it really, really does, not just because of the names of the books, because they're later. But in fact, the theme of the book is that Samuel is the last of the Shephatim, and he's a prophet He's a prophet leader in the spirit of Moses and Joshua. But then the people are going to demand of him, hey Samuel, you're getting old. Your sons, I'm sorry to say, are terribly corrupt, which they were. We need a king. We're tired of the system of judges. It has to end right now. And that's going to create the fun struggles that you and I will go through in the, in the coming week. Before I, before I close up shop, 